0: So, you'll remember last week we sort of did a whistle-stop tour of the first 11 chapters of Hebrews, um, which of course is an impossible thing to do, but as we went through, we drew out certain certain lessons which are helpful for us as a church today. Because you'll remember that um, I said the, the writer of the Hebrews was writing to a group of people who were disillusioned. A group of people who were looking at their faith and saying, really, is this, are we actually right? Is there a point? Is, is Jesus actually worth dedicating our lives to? Because we're being persecuted and we're being cut off from, from friends and family. Everything that we were taught as we grew up, we're having to, to, to re, re-understand in, in the context of Jesus. And it's hard work. Should we just go back to doing things the way they were? It was easier then. Should we reconnect with the synagogue and our friends and family and should we go back to our old traditions and the writer of this letter is writing to a group of people and he's imploring them to persevere to keep going with their faith and he points to Jesus and he he spends the first um, uh, the first ten chapters pointing to Jesus and justifying why Jesus is worth living for that Jesus was who he said he was the son of God and then we get up to chapter 11. And the author starts talking about faith. And he uses example after example of times when, when faith has been tested. He talks about Abel. He talks about Noah. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Sarah. He talks about Isaac and Jacob. And then he goes into talking about, about The Israelites passing through the Red Sea, reminding what God's done, that God was faithful, reminding them of the the fall of the walls of Jericho, and saying, don't forget these things. Now, to you and I, these are stories that we read about in Scripture. To the Jews, to the Hebrews, these are stories that would have been passed down in their family. They would have had the, 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 the oral tradition, which had passed down accounts, of these amazing things that, that we read about. But for them it would have been, as well as having the, the sort of the, 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 the formal, if you like, that we now see in scripture, they would have had personal links to these things. Don't forget what your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather said. You know, he always claims to be the one who was, who was playing the trumpet the loudest as they walked around Jericho. He claims personally that it was his playing that brought down the walls. Then again, so do dozens of others who want to claim that they were the ones. It's a bit like when you go fishing and everyone claims that the one that got away was like this. It would have been a very personal thing. And so when when the author of this letter writes to his people and he's imploring them, he's really pulling at the heartstrings. This is a personal, intimate piece of writing that reaches out. Reaches out to these people who he wants to encourage in their faith. And he reminds them at the end of chapter 11, he says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together, with us, would they be made perfect. In other words, those people lived by faith. They were looking forward and forward and forward. They were looking forward to the promised Messiah that God had had said, one day I will send. And they were expecting a warrior. They were expecting a, a heroic figure. And so when they got this tiny little baby laying in the squalor of a stable... They were a little bit let down, a bit disappointed. And as they saw this baby grow as one of the people, with no palaces and splendor, no great steed that he rode stampeding through, all those who oppressed the Jewish people, many, many, many rejected him. And so it was that Jesus came to hang on a cross. And of course, three days later, Jesus walked out of that tomb and appeared to many hundreds of people. And so at the end of chapter 11, the author of the letters to the Hebrews says, look, all these great stories, all these amazing people, these heroes of the faith that we look back to, they did all that, but they never they never saw what God had promised he was going to send. They did it all by faith. But you, you have seen Jesus. We now have Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so together, we and all of those people that we've just spoken about, we together are made perfect through Jesus Jesus is the final piece of the jigsaw and it's a great piece of writing but we then get to chapter 12 and this morning as we prepare ourselves for communion I'm going to read the opening section of chapter 12 and then we're going to explore what we can learn from this for our context today so from the beginning of Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you, have not, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Father. No discipline seems pleasant at that time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So we see here, there's a shift in the letter. Everything so far has been talking about, has been encouraging the readership. Not to give up, to keep going and going and going. And the author obviously feels like he's 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 got his point across. He's got there. Because at the beginning of chapter 12, therefore, so so having read all that, this is how you've got to respond. This is what we've got to expect. We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. We've got such a massive body of evidence in, in the scriptures of the Old Testament for what God has done. We see time and time again that God has been faithful to his people. We have so much to go back to, to look to, to, to remind ourselves. But don't forget that everything that happened was leading up to the Messiah. And the Messiah's come. Jesus was that Messiah. In Jesus' life, in his birth and his death, he fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Over 300 prophecies. When we start to look at the evidence for Jesus, it's hard. It takes a lot more faith to disbelieve than it does to believe. Last week I spoke, didn't I, about the, the analogy of the courtroom and how in a courtroom, a body of evidence is presented and it's meticulously examined and gone through and explained and at the end of it there is a judgment made. The jury having heard everything then decide whether the evidence is enough to, commit, uh, to convict somebody or not. The author of the Hebrews says we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we're surrounded by such a, a convincing body of evidence, But let's not waver in our faith. Let's not wobble. Let's put aside those doubts that maybe we've allowed to creep in. Let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with race. Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Note there that we're told to run with perseverance. Perseverance means keeping on going and going and going and sticking at it. When we persevere at something, it means that the thing that we're doing is not something that's easy to do. This race that is spoken about is not a one-mile fun run that you can jog around dressed as a ballerina or something. That doesn't necessarily take perseverance. I know there'll be some people sitting there who think, one mile, i have come off it. But most people can walk and jog a little bit and smile and enjoy it and stop along the way and high-five and, and get to the end and think, I didn't even break sweat. It's not too difficult. But this, this isn't perseverance. The race here that the author of the Hebrews is, is, is talking about is a race that is going to be hard work. There are going to be times when it feels, like, it feels like things are holding us back and weighing us down. It's going to be feeling like instead of a, a little fun run, it's just, this is a 10-mile tough mudder with massive obstacles that we have to overcome, and we're going to be absolutely shattered by the end of it. That's more like the sort of race that he's talking about. But he says, don't let it feel like that. Throw off everything that hinders you. I don't know if any of you are are runners, but when you go out for a run sometimes and it's a little bit chilly outside, the temptation is to put on pretty much everything you own, every item of clothing, because you open that back door and, and your body is telling you, warm up, put some clothes on, it's freezing out there. But you get a few yards down the street and you've been running a little bit and immediately your heart rate lifts and you start to warm up and then you start to sweat and then the things that you'd put on because you thought you needed them have become a hindrance. Then you have to go turn around, go back down the street, start taking layers off, chuck them on the doorstep, and then go for a run, dressed more appropriately for what you're doing. Throw off everything that hinders you. And the sin that so easily entangles. We're all sinners. We know that. If you're not a sinner, you don't need Jesus. There's no one in this world that can claim they've never ever done anything wrong. They've never ever failed to, to honor God in their lives. Anyone who claims to be is themselves a liar and therefore, by definition, a sinner. But sin entangles us if we let it. If we don't come before God and confess our sin and just say, Lord, I've, I've failed you, please forgive me. If we don't do that, if we see confession as something unnecessary or something a bit out of date, then... Our sin builds up around us. It entangles us and ensnares us. And again, it prevents us from running the race marked out for us. How do we stop that? How do we prevent that from happening? We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and protector of our faith the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross you see this is the thing jesus was sent into this earth he was born into that poverty stricken state so that when we look at jesus when we look at his life we can see that he's endured he suffered We're told that he was tempted in every way. There is nothing that we go through in life that Jesus can't identify with. And so it was necessary that God sent our Messiah into the world, not as a a king with every every, every aspect of the riches of kings that you'd expect with the palaces and the power and the influence, He sent him into this world with nothing. Because that's how we start. That's how we live. We can identify with Jesus. We can call him Lord, but we can also, we can call him a brother. We can call him a friend. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he waits there for us. In John 14, he reminds us that he's going to prepare a place for us. That's what he's doing right now. I love love that image. Right now, Jesus is doing the work of preparing a place for us. It's this wonderful image. And the author of Hebrews goes on, Says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Whatever opposition we face in life, we will never be hung on a cross. We will never be hung on a cross having had a trial in which the judge has said, I can find nothing wrong with this person. That will never be allowed to happen. But Jesus went through with that, he suffered the injustice. Because he loves us. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Do we remember that that example in Luke's gospel? Where Luke says... Jesus, being in anguish, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus was, was, was arrested and then, and then went through the, 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 the trial that was an absolute farce and then crucified. He knew what was going to happen to him. He knew what God was calling him to do, and he, he sweat blood. This is an actual medical condition. In the First World War, when troops were waiting for the artillery to finish and the whistles to go and be sent over the top, there there are recorded cases of men sweating blood because they knew, they knew the horrors that awaited them, they knew that if if they didn't go they'd get a bullet in the back and if they did go they'd get a bullet in the front. And they sweated blood. Jesus, he was fully God, but he's also fully man. And in this image, we see the fear of the suffering that was set before him. But he went ahead with it for us. He went ahead with that because he loves us. And As we read the book of Hebrews, we are reminded of how much Jesus loves us. He did that because he is motivated by his love for each and every one of us. If you're sitting there this morning and you're, you're feeling a bit low or a bit unworthy or you're thinking, I've, I've, I, you don't know my life, Tom. I've, I've made so many mistakes, it's impossible for God to love me. Well, hear this. Jesus died for you. Amen. He went to the cross for you. He sweat blood. He was so terrified about what lay ahead, but you were in his mind, and you were the motivation that carried him to the point of going through with what the Father had set before him. It's difficult for us to understand. It's an amazing thing. But Jesus did that for us. This passage goes on. You've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you. Do you remember that last week? It's important to remember this. There's no such thing as the gift of discouragement. God encourages us in our faith. He wants us to be lifted. And here again in Scripture we read, don't forget these words of encouragement. And there's a quote from from Proverbs 3. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son or a daughter. When we, when we look at Proverbs 3, just before that quote which we read in Hebrews, there's a very familiar, very familiar passage that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. In other words, we're not going to understand everything God does. There are going to be so many times when we look at the world and we think, I just don't understand what's going on around us. I don't understand why there is there is this complete lack of integrity in our leaders, why there is the threat of, of a potentially severe war in Europe. I don't understand why why there is there are effectively, labor camps in North Korea. I don't understand why, why in Somalia and Syria we have these horrendous situations that have caused so many hundreds of thousands of people to flee their homes. I don't understand why children suffer and die. I don't understand why, why good people endure these awful things. And I look at the world and I can't, I can't marry that up to a God of love. We were never meant to. We were never meant to. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You see, faith Faith requires us to believe in something that we can't absolute, absolutely prove. On the Alpha course, we often use, use the, the analogy of a, of a chasm. And you think, right, okay, at the start of the Alpha course, you're standing there, and God's standing there, and you're saying, there's this massive empty gap. If I try and leap across it, I'm not going to get there. You tell me to take like a leap of faith, but physically, I cannot do it. And so we encourage people to look at all the different types of evidence that exists, to, to, to weigh it all up. And eventually, over time, you see them. You see that gap getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually you're not asking them to take a running jump and to leap out into a nothingness. You're asking them just to step across a small gap. And there, they meet with God. But, but, that gap will never disappear. There will always be a point where we say, well, look, the evidence has brought me from all the way over there to all the way here. But there is there's still that gap. Because God wants us to believe. He wants us to have faith. Faith bridges that gap. Faith bridges that gap. And so, when we've When we've studied the evidence, when we've looked at the evidence, when we've assured ourselves that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus died on the cross and then rose again, that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do, that he was the promised Messiah. Then, we are ready to endure hardship as discipline. We don't like to think of God as disciplining us, do we? We like to think of God as being all cuddly and soft and maybe the sort of a podgy grandfather figure that gathers us in his arms and says, don't worry, it'll be all right, and tussles the hair and sends us on our way. A nice, cuddly, lovely God. I heard it once said, we're very good at talking about God Almighty, but sometimes we forget God Almighty. When I, was, when I was a child, and I was naughty, I was smacked. Not a very popular thing to say now, I, I appreciate, but it's true. Never beaten black and blue or anything like that, we're not, we're not talking about abuse, we're talking about discipline. And there is a very clear difference. If I was told to be home by 7 o'clock at night, and I was playing football in the park and, and we were Tottenham and the other team was, was Liverpool and, and it, there, was, there was 20 minutes to go and it was already quarter past seven. I knew I was going to be late but I couldn't let the team down so I stayed and I eventually got home at, uh, just before eight o'clock. I knew, I knew that I was going to be in trouble. I was prepared to take that risk. It was worth it. But I walked in the door. I walked in the door and I knew that I was going to be shouted at. I knew that I was going to be made to go to bed early, and I knew that chances are I'd get a smack on the bum. It, was not, it wasn't a hard smack, but it was, it, was, it was enough. It was a smack on the bum. It wasn't because I wasn't loved. Quite the opposite, it was because my parents loved me. Now, some people might be sitting there thinking, I'm uncomfortable with this, there's a, a, a minister talking about that saying it's okay to, to smack a child. I'm not saying that. I wouldn't dream of smacking my own son. I never have, and I don't think I ever will. I'm sure I never ever will. I've been brought up that you don't do that sort of thing. That's the context I've been brought up in, and I think that's right. Equally, I look back, and I think my parents were right. I didn't suffer. It taught me a lesson, and I, I, I carry those lessons through. The reason I'm telling you all this is because... If you're new to the faith and you look back at the Old Testament and you read some of the, what we would call, atrocities where God sanctioned, God said, go into that city and don't leave any man, woman or child standing. And we think, Pff, ouch. How can we, how, can we, how can we qualify that with a, by a, an act of a God of love? Well, in my... I'm in my early to very late 30s. Um, <clears throat> and in that lifetime, an attitude has gone from a smack on a bum being perfectly acceptable to it not being acceptable. We're talking about several thousand years worth of history the context and the culture and the society and the relationship and understanding between the, the people of God and God is unrecognisable now. And I know that for some people it's a barrier to look back and say, well, a, a God who disciplines, I, I'm, not, I'm not happy with that. I'm happy with the God of love. I just want the love. I don't want the discipline. But the author of the letter to the Hebrews makes it absolutely clear that God doesn't discipline us because he doesn't like us. It's not because he wants to beat us and hurt us and harm us. God disciplines us because he knows what's best for us. And so often we we do the wrong thing, we get it wrong and we disobey him and he brings us back into line. He brings us back into line because he wants us to stay on the path that he set before us. Because that is the path where we're going to have a fulfilled life. Where we're going to stay close to him. That's the path where we're going to to understand and appreciate the love that he wants to give us. That's the life where we're not going to damage and hurt other people. But instead we're going to nourish and nurture them. Hebrews goes even further to say, if you're not disciplined by God, then you're illegitimate children. Anyone who says, I don't believe that God disciplines us. Well, actually, what you're saying then is that there's no boundary. You're saying we can do whatever we like and God will never, ever discipline us. That's not a loving God. Because if we go and do whatever we like, then eventually we're going we're to get it wrong. We're going we're to make a mistake in life and we're going to have serious consequences to face. And God doesn't want that for his children. He wants us to be kept safe. No parent would say to a child, look, play with the knife. Go for it. If you're having fun, that's what matters. You'd say, come here, put that down. Don't ever play with this. And the child would be shocked and might cry. But it's because the parent wants to protect them and love them. And God wants to protect and love us. God is a God who is living and active amongst us. He loves us so much that he sent his son into the world to lay down his life for us. When we read Hebrews, we come away with no doubt at all that there will be times when we face hardships. But just as we begin to prepare ourselves for communion now, I just want to remind us of the opening of the book of James, where James writes, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So James is in line here with, with the author of the letter to the Hebrews in saying, in saying that persevere through hardship, because God uses those times to build us, to shape us, to encourage us, and bring us to a point where we can look back and say, wow, I never thought I was going to get through that, but here I am. And God uses us as well to to, to reach out to those around us and say, I know what you're going through. And you won't think you can do this right now, but, but believe me, you can. It's hard, but... James says, consider it pure joy. At this point, we're going to pause. We're going to pray. We're going to worship and then we're going to consider bringing ourselves before the communion table and sharing together. As a fellowship Father God I thank you that you are a God who loves his children you are a father to us I thank you that you know each and every one of us intimately I thank you that you never abandon us you never give up on us you never leave or forsake us but instead through all of our life experiences. You walk alongside us. I thank you that everything that we experience in life, you sent your son into the world to experience the same. And so when we look to Jesus, we see someone who who can empathize with us, who can reach out to us, who can encourage us, who can carry us at times, who can share all of the highs and the lows that we experience in life and never, ever, Leave us. Father, thank you for your son. And thank you for your word. Thank you that we can, we can look back at this bank of evidence and that we can be absolutely certain that our faith is well placed. And Father, thank you as well for the communion that we are about to share together. And as we worship you now, Lord, I pray that you will help us to to bring to you our faults, our past, and lay all the things that we know we need to confess to you. Just lay them at your feet. We are your children. And we love our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Right at the end of um, the letters to the Hebrews, the author goes on to talk about sacrifice. And he talks about how prior to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, he describes how the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. This was a place in the temple, the, the very innermost place of the temple that no one except for the high priest could ever go. And even then only after a series of cleansing rituals to make sure he was properly prepared and cleaned in order to enter the presence of God. And the author makes the point that the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burnt outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So as we come before the communion table, as we prepare ourselves, let's pray. And as we pray, Let's just remember that because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we are not left standing outside whilst the high priest goes into the holy of holies, the presence of God. But instead, because Jesus, his body was hung on a cross outside the city gate. It was accessible to all. And Jesus is still accessible to all. He laid his life down for us. And if we choose to follow him, if we consider who he was, and if we come to our own conclusion that that we are prepared to take that small step of faith, then this body and this blood are ours. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what we are about to receive. And we thank you for what they represent, Lord the body and the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you that, as we've already heard this morning, despite knowing exactly the suffering that he was to endure, Jesus went to the cross. And he went to the cross, and as he hung there, amongst the mockers, with the soldiers, with the priests looking on, those who had persecuted him, those who had arrested him, those who had, had carried out the, the false trial, passed sentence on an innocent man. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, we come to you this morning and we acknowledge that we are, we are fallen people. And we say, Father, forgive us. And we give thanks that by your grace and by the power of your love for us, we are forgiven. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this communion. We thank you for this church. And we thank you for your presence with us this morning in Jesus name Amen and so we take the bread some of us have brought our own elements this morning others have taken one of the pods as we came in today but we remember that night in Jerusalem as they prepared to share together the Passover feast Jesus and his companions his disciples had a meal together and Jesus took the bread and he broke it saying this is my body given for you that was not just a gift to those few gathered in that room it's a gift to all of us so let's eat together In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he will come again because Jesus does not break his promises. So let's drink and be thankful. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought Jesus back from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.